Well, good morning. My name is Mark, and I serve as one of the pastors here, and it's a pleasure to have all of you with us. You know, a question I've been getting a lot lately is, what's going on with the building that we said we were, we were going to buy? And I, I just wanted to take some time right at the front end here to give you a little bit of update on that. The process is still going well. It's been a little bit extended with our due diligence period, but it's still going well. There's a few hurdles we still have to, to jump over to get to the closing table on that. But we're, we're praying, we're hopeful that that is going to, to happen in the near future. Um, that being said, even when we do um, close on that facility, it's going to be a little bit of a long road because uh, there's, there's a lot of renovation um, and building that needs to happen in order for it to be usable. So we're, we're looking at next spring, about this time, um, uh, early summer as as when we could actually get in there and start worshiping in that space. Um, which means that um, we're going to be in temporary space for, for quite a while here. But I have been so grateful for how God has provided for Fellowship Nashville in this season. You know, we got um, sort of kicked out, well, not kicked out, um, asked to leave um, <laughs> the, the public school because of COVID protocols. You know, they couldn't have outside groups use their facilities. Uh, we used to be meeting at Waverly Belmont Elementary School, which is a great space for us. Um, then we bounced to Weld and then now to, to Tech Hill. And this has its limitations. Um, um, we have a lease through this, this July um, here in this space. But this is going to have to become teardown setup if we were to renew that lease. Um, and so, um, like God always does, he, he provides in his timing, in his way. And we got an email from Metro Nashville Public Schools that they were opening back up. And so we had a good, good meeting with the principal of Waverly Belmont this, this past week. And all the paperwork is, is now being filed. And it, it appears like we're going to be able to get back into Waverly Belmont beginning in mid-July. So um, that's exciting. And everybody who cheered will be signing up for the setup and teardown crews. Um, so thank you for volunteering. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> um, but we're, all that to say, um, it's exciting we get to be in a space that's going to be more usable for us for expanded kids' ministries, for being all together in one. So I see Tay praising the Lord back there. Um, for, um, for all being together instead of in two services. And so we're, we're excited to be back in that space. But we do need, look at Steve, back corner. He is holding up a, a volunteer sign-up sheet for letting us know that you are willing and able to serve in setup and tear down. We want to get a, a small army together so it's not burdensome on anyone. So afterwards, if you would, on your way out, I mean, you have to get past Steve um, to exit, but no, no pressure, but pressure um, to sign up for our setup and tear down. I want to introduce you to our speaker for today. He's a good friend of mine, a close friend of mine. Uh, we're going to take a, a short break from the Gospel of John, our sermon series through the Gospel of John, and we wanted to, to take a dive into the topic of being a disciple and making a disciple this summer, making disciples this summer. And I could not think of anyone better than Dave Bachman to come and share that. He and his wife, Lynette, um, serve as city directors for Navigators, which is this international discipleship-making ministry. Um, specifically, they, they work with a lot of young people here in our city with, with the 
young professionals age group, primarily with also with college age group at, at Vandy and Belmont and Lipscomb. Um, and their mantra is to know Christ, to make him known, and to help others do the same. And so I'm ex um, Dave and Lynette have um, five kids, four of which are still sitting here, three daughters and, and two, two boys. But uh, Dave lives this out. He really does. He invests in people. He makes himself available to be invested in. He's a great friend to me, an encouragement to me, co-laborer in the gospel. And Dave, it's a pleasure to have you come share about uh, this all-important topic of being disciples and making disciples. Let's welcome Dave. Awesome. So good to be here with you guys. It really is a privilege to get to share with y'all. I love being a part of this church. We are not a perfect church. You'll find that out. Uh, you'll find that out anywhere you go. There is no perfect church. But I love this church. I love these people. I'm so grateful to be part of this. And so it's fun to be able to get up here and share with you guys. Um, happy Father's Day to the, to the dads out there. I know Wes already mentioned that. Appreciate that, Wes. Um, I'm excited to tell you guys a few stories about my dad as I kind of share part of my message today. So this will be fun. But let me jump in here with us this morning on this topic. Um, guys, the world is facing a real problem in the aftermath of the pandemic. It has to do with relationships. That's why we're talking about relationships this morning. According to a recent report by the United Health Foundation, two-thirds of adults say that they are experiencing increased anxiety and social isolation, or you might call that the loss of meaningful relationships. One of the chief researchers on this study, I mean, two-thirds of, of, of Americans, one of the chief researchers concluded this is a very real public health crisis. Decades of research on prolonged social isolation and loneliness show it's worse than obesity for your health, as well as it's as damaging as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. I don't know how they calculate all that, but somehow someone found out loneliness is a very bad thing for our health. She later goes on to call what we are facing in the U.S. a loneliness epidemic. And then this is interesting, too. She also pointed out only 10% of people that claim to be experiencing this social isolation seem to be reaching out for any sort of help. We're stuck. They're feeling stuck. Guys, it turns out that healthy relationships are critical to human flourishing. We're starting a three-part series here, and the, the topic is three critical relationships. You and I were made for these kinds of relationships, healthy, intimate, transformational relationships. And I want to present to you guys over the next couple of weeks three types of those relationships as seen in Scripture and I want you to see the potential that these relationships have to really create transformation in your life. Today, we'll just focus on one of those relationships. And I want to share with you again about my dad a little bit. Um, my granddad, first of all, he died when he was 47 years old. And my dad, I remember he sat my, my brother and I down. And he, he shared with us, he was wrestling with this question at age 42. What if I only had five more years to live? And he retold this to us and said that God had impressed upon him to pour into his kids the things that God had taught him. So he asked me and my older brother if we'd be interested in getting together on a weekly basis, meeting up. Uh, we'd go before school and get breakfast together, and then we'd open the Bible together and talk about what God might want to say to us. My brother and I, we were excited about breakfast mostly, um, but getting into the Bible sounded kind of interesting too. I'm curious what dad would have to say about that. And my dad really took the bull by the horns for this, okay? He, he didn't sort of, he wasn't awkward about it. He wasn't weird about it. He was, he, he was, he was all in. I remember he started teaching us how to memorize scripture, 
how to really study the Bible for ourselves. He taught us how to apply it to our lives. He taught us how to pray, and he showed us how to pray. He also opened up about his struggles and the things he was dealing with, the hard stuff, appropriately. He felt more like an older brother at times or like a friend than he did like a parent figure. He asked my brother and I hard questions, and he challenged us. Questions like, how can we do our chores with a better attitude? How can we look out for our sister more? How can we represent Christ to our friends? Most importantly, I believe, though, he got into the Word with us, and then he, he, he realized that, or we realized over time, that it matched his life. He was living it out. We didn't just hear about the Word and read the, read the words in the page. We saw it lived out in the flesh. That was powerful for us. It wasn't long before I found out that someone had spent individual time with my dad, pouring into him, helping him grow as a man and as a leader and as a Christ follower. This guy personally gave his life to my dad. They'd actually been meeting to read the Bible and, and apply it to their lives and discuss life. They'd been doing this for 10 years before I really kind of found out about it. It made all the difference in my dad's life. His dad died when he was 13. He didn't have anyone to show him what this looked like. It made all the difference in his life to have a man like this pour into him. And subsequently, it made all the difference in my life as it passed down to me. I'll, I'll be forever grateful to that man who gave his life and poured into my dad. After a couple of meetings like this with my dad, though, we were, we were, we were, we've been doing this actually for, for quite a while, probably, probably a year or two in. The conversation took a turn at those breakfast meetings on Sunday morning, on, on different mornings when we met. And I was not expecting what was about to come. He told us to open our Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy 2.2. If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to do that. It's also here on the screen, I guess, too. That's so convenient. He told us to turn to 2 Timothy 2.2, and he asked us to, to read this, and then how many people did we notice in this verse? And I'll read it with you here. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. How many people do you see in this verse is what my dad asked us. We remember looking at it, and we knew that Paul had wrote the book. Timothy was the recipient. This is likely Paul's last letter. And Paul was telling Timothy, you know, entrust what I've taught you, entrust what I've poured into you to faithful men. Go find those guys. And then have an eye towards the ones that they're going to pour into, the others. Those are the four sort of generations of people that, 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 that you see in this verse. And after more discussion around this verse, it really hit me. I was a part of this. I was a part of this powerful chain of men who were living out a concept that their early church was built around. My own dad happened to be my Paul. I was his Timothy. And now it was time for me to start praying for faithful men with an eye towards who the others that they would reach out to. When my dad put that on the table for my brother and I, who, who are you going to pour into? All of a sudden it got real. You know, did we really believe this? Were we, did we, how, how comfortable did we feel passing this on to others? Did we really feel like the Great Commission was for us as well, that we could, we could make disciples? This morning we're talking about three critical relationships. And the first critical relationship I want to encourage you to pursue is finding a Paul. In other words, finding someone who can be a spiritual mentor to you, someone who will pour into you, a discipler, a, a spiritual coach maybe. There's different ways you might say this. Paul had this kind of relationship with Timothy, and I want to explore with you this morning what that kind of relationship looked like and draw out a few things. Three things I just want to point out this morning. Why finding a Paul is critical. What to look for in a Paul. And then the other side of the relationship, who to become as a Timothy. Why is finding a Paul so crucial for us? Finding someone 
who's a little older in the Lord, who can pour into us and show us what this looks like, and put skin on this for us. In a letter to the Corinthians, Paul expresses his concern for the young believers. And this is what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, 3. And this is, imagine just, imagine from a, sort of a, a spiritual father communicating this to, the, to this young church. He's, his heart is, he's, he's a little, he, there's, some, there's some fear here. There's some nervousness here. But I am afraid that as this, the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul wrote four letters to the Corinthians. We get two of them in the Bible. He had such a heart for these people, and they were messing everything up, and he just kept writing back and going back, and he had such a heart to see them grow in the Lord. But he, was, he, had, he, had, he had fear for them. He, was, he, he worried that they would fall back into their old ways. Guys, we too are living very much so in the middle of a spiritual battle, and part of the enemy's game plan is to slowly entice you and I away from this love for Jesus and replace it with a love for the world. That's the context of our lives in the middle of a spiritual battle. And Paul knows that in our flesh, we are actually quite vulnerable. And yet, with that reality still as a backdrop, we still have this grand calling on our lives to, to given to us by Jesus. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And that goes on. We're weak under spiritual attack and vulnerable. And we're called to the greatest mission the world has ever known. How is this going to work? We were made for this noble purpose, to love God as a disciple, to make disciples. But a lot of us struggle to really connect with that. What does that look like in my life? Can I really be a part of that? When I put these two verses together, this is kind of my summary. We are not invincible. We are not invincible. And two, we've been called to something great. So the simple conclusion for me is we are going to need lots of help. We need help. I remember that was the very first sentence that one of my kids ended up saying was, Dad, I need help. And it was like she had not said any individual words. She just said that phrase all at one time. We talk about that all the time. Like that's one of the most beautiful things that you could ever say is I need help. And we struggle in our, in our American culture for whatever reason to say that. But if you look at the scriptures and you realize the gravity of what we're called to and yet the, 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 the pain, the, the depravity of our sin, you put those together and you, all you could say is, Lord, help us. Lord, have mercy. Help us. We were not meant to do this alone, guys. That's my big conclusion. And one way that we need help is from a Paul figure in our life spiritual mentors and guides. Maybe it's one, maybe it's many throughout our life. Maybe it's, maybe it's several, but people pouring into our lives, helping us live out this calling. You know, one of the tragic ways that isolation and technology is affecting us today is that many of us are more likely to Google or YouTube when we have questions and, and, and worries and concerns than we are to talk to a real person. And I struggle with this too. You can Google for information, but you can't really Google how to live a godly life through hardships, right? You and I can read five strategies to cope with loneliness on the internet, but we can't, the internet can't give us the personal attention that you and I need from someone who really cares, who can sit with us and listen to us and help us feel known and loved. You can't get that on the internet. 
I remember hearing Lynette share about what it was like to be uh, a young mom experiencing the sleep regression at like about four months old of one of our kids. And she relayed to me that, you know, she, she could Google it and read about sort of how this is, this is normal. A lot of times this happens with four-month-olds and nothing to worry about. Just, you know, you'll make it. She could join a Facebook group with other young moms who are mutually struggling with this. And she maybe, you know, people just as clueless as she was. And she could maybe get a little, get a little comfort from that, but, but not really understand what, the, you know, not really have her true needs met. It was in the context of a real flesh and blood mentor pouring into her life that she could find someone who would grab her hands and pray with her. You know, someone who would remind her of eternal things. Somebody who could share personal stories from her life about trusting God in those sleepless, difficult years of being a young mom. Somebody who could point her heart to Jesus through both words and example. Can't get that on the internet. And yet that's what we're programming ourselves to do um, in sort of modern life. We see this example of a Paul-Timothy relationship all over the Scripture. It wasn't just these two guys, okay? We see it in families passing along the faith from one generation to another. I think it's so cool that God even refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I'm the God of this generation of men who are pouring and passing on um, the good news. We see it among workplace leaders. Maybe you don't always think about Moses as a workplace leader, but he was a military leader. He was a government leader. He, had all, he wore all kinds of hats. He had a big job in front of him. But if you read the, story, the account of Moses, you'll notice multiple times there was this young guy named Joshua who was always right by his side. There was this young guy named Joshua who was with him in the tent of meeting. He was with him in the meetings with all the generals and different things that were going on. He had an eye towards the next generation. We see it among spiritual leaders. Elijah, arguably the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, did amazing things, but he had a heart for the next guy who would do it, and he took along Elisha under his wing, and Elisha became, you know, in, in many ways, he, he, he received a double portion of the spirit that Elisha, that Elijah had. We see it, this Paul Timothy, we see it modeled for believers with Jesus. Jesus, obviously, right, he, got, he, he called 12 guys to come follow him, 12 guys who would get sort of the deepest and most thorough of his, of his truths and his, his relationship. Even among those 12, he had three, Peter, James, and John. He went the distance with those three. He pulled them into some really important extra meetings and different things and, and made sure that those three guys would, would have clarity when Jesus was gone to continue this thing on. Why did God give us so many pictures of this? You know, could it be that we were designed to be in these kinds of intentional relationships? Perhaps having a Paul in your life is, is one of the key relationships that God wants to use to comfort and to challenge you in your struggles and in your brokenness. Perhaps having a Paul in your life is, is one of the key relationships God wants to use to inspire and encourage you to engage in the great mission of making disciples. If you think about making disciples and you're like, what does that even mean? Where do I start? Could God use, really use my life? You're a perfect candidate to find a Paul, find someone who can show you what that looks like. I'm convinced, y'all, that without a life-to-life engagement from mentors and guides in our lives, our potential for growth will be significantly slowed down. Our potential for impact will be significantly limited. You and I, we need a Paul in our life, and that's what today's message is about. We're going to hear about the other relationships later. 
What do you look for in a Paul? If you've set this on your heart to, to, to find a Paul, where do you start? What do you, what do you look for in someone? The founder of the Navigators, Mark mentioned that I, that's who I've been hanging out with for the last several years. In 1933 was this guy named Dawson Trotman. He was passionate about making disciples. This guy was a lumberyard truck driver. He was kind of like, anyone can be a spiritual leader, okay? I love, the, I love just the message of his life. Um, he wanted to make disciples in the most personal way possible. He was asked later on in his life why he never wrote a book on this bread and butter topic of making disciples. And his response was that the best book on it had already been written, 1 Thessalonians. Have you read 1 Thessalonians? This topic interests you. Pick up 1 Thessalonians. Read the first two, three chapters especially. And you're going to see this picture of close, relational, life-to-life discipleship. We'll look at the book a little, more, a little bit more next week. But I wanted to pay attention to just one verse in chapter 2. So for context, Paul was in Thessalonica likely for maybe a month, maybe two before a mob ran him off. Um, he, he, he developed a significant relationship with the people there. He had a deep heart for them. You can read all about the mob that ran him off in Acts 17. All of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is Paul outlining his heart and methods for making disciples among them. Here's chapter 2, verse 8. This is such a good verse. And uh, pay attention to, to some of these words. I'm going to ask you a question in a minute. 1 Thessalonians 2.8, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become so dear to us. What stands out to you about this verse? This is not necessarily the language that you and I always use. Does this sound like a transactional relationship? Does this sound like they were a project to Paul? No. This is real. This is deep affection. This is real relationship that he had with these people. This is authentic care. This is something to look for in Paul, y'all. At a base level, you know, is this person someone who you connect with? Is this, is this someone that you have an affinity for? Is this someone that you get along well with? You know, going further, I would say, do you admire the way that they love and care for the people and their sphere of influence. Okay, look for love in this person. I like the way, too, this, this single verse is laid out. We see that love in, is the, in the first and last phrases of this verse. It's like the two pieces of a sandwich, okay? And think about this in the context of a relationship. If you can get these, if you can get, if, you know, love covers the whole, surrounds the whole thing. But there's still, right in the middle is the meat of the relationship. And Paul points this out in his verse here. Paul and his companions shared with the Thessalonians two things, the Word of God and their very lives. The Word of God and their very lives. Paul sat with them and he shared with them the good news about Jesus, the gospel message, and, and, and how, that, how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament had spoken of. They looked at all kinds of scriptures together. Just a quick look at chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians. You can see some of the stuff that Paul might have passed on to them in the Word. Um, how to be joyful in suffering. How to follow the Holy Spirit. How to look to God alone for fulfillment instead of worldly idols. They opened the Bible. They got into the Scriptures together and talked about these things. Paul likely had it memorized and recited it and talked about the different guys who wrote it. How to have an eternal mindset was something that was em emphasized, as you can see in chapter 1. How to share the good news with others. The, this message that came to the Thessalonians rang out 
to the entire region is what it says. I'll never forget the time that my dad was encouraging me over breakfast at that bagel shop to memorize Mark 10:45. It says, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as we were, he was, as we were talking about that verse and we were, we were discussing it together, he shared how he felt that he had failed to really model that verse well for my brother and I. You know, often my mom would have her list of honeydews, and, and dad didn't really want to do it. Um, he wanted to do the things he wanted to do. He wanted to go play golf. He wanted to uh, wash the car. I mean, anything but do, you know, mom's detailed honeydew list. And he was confessing this to us, and, and it was as he was confessing uh, that it was convicting him right there on the spot, we also felt convicted. He modeled that for us. Mom was doing a lot for me, and it didn't seem like I was doing much for her except making bigger messes for her to clean up. We confessed our sin together, me, my brother, and my dad, to God, asked him for his grace and forgiveness. We asked God to help us to grow as servants, and we committed to memorize that verse together. Man, that was like, gosh, that was like 20, that was almost like 25 years ago. That that verse still sticks with me and challenges me so much. In addition to someone who's offering love, y'all, look for a Paul who will share the word with you. But not just that, they'll share their life with you. They'll open up and get real with you. That's what seems to be the secret sauce that makes all the difference. Guys, every relationship has two participants though, right? So you, you could have a wonderful Paul who's pouring love and word and life into someone, but see very little transformation because Timothy isn't so receptive. If Timothy's kind of guarded and, 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 and maybe kind of untrusting or, um, yeah, just resistant in some ways. And we're all like that. We can be like that sometimes. That's part, of, that's part of being human. If I'm to look for a Paul, though, and a particular kind of Paul, what kind of Timothy might he be looking for? Who can I seek to become? How can I position myself for the most transformation well, we can learn a lot from examining the first interactions of Timothy, this young believer, and his eventual mentor, spiritual, Paul, uh, spiritual mentor Paul, when they first met in Acts 16. So Acts 16, 1 through 5, I want to read that with you guys. This says, Paul came, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. I want to make three observations about Timothy's character that we see here. First of all, Timothy had a good reputation among the believers in the whole region. He was well-spoken of by people all over this area. His faithfulness was evident to all. Um, Dawson Trotman, who I told you about earlier, he would often say that many men aspire to climb mountains, but they trip over molehills. In other words, they struggle to be faithful in the small things. What does it look like to become someone who is faithful like that? Here's a thought. Not someone who's perfect but faithful in confessing and repenting. What does faithfulness look like? Not someone who never misses a day of Bible reading, but someone who stays in the fight 
to, have to, to find a time, to have that consistent input of God's Word into the life. Not someone who has never has fear sharing their faith, but someone who learns to step out and take risks anyway. Remember who Paul told Timothy to find in 2 Timothy 2.2? 2, 2? He said, Timothy, go find faithful men who will be able to teach others also. No doubt this reputation of Timothy's faithfulness influenced Paul to take him on as a disciple. The text says Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, to accompany him. I love that. We also see in Timothy that he was very teachable. He was willing to go through a minor surgery as a grown man in order to be more effective as a leader with Paul. Even though Paul would later argue in Galatians, like, this was not necessary. Jews no longer needed to have this kind of procedure because it did not tell the real story of their hearts. But the Jews in those places, is what it says, that they were going to, they would not have respected or even listened to Timothy because they knew, apparently it was really well known that this guy had a Gentile father and uh, he was not a believer, most likely. Um, And unless Timothy was circumcised, he's not sort of getting in the door, let alone like into the synagogue, into the temples. This shows a lot about Timothy's heart, right? It was not required by Christ for Timothy to have this, but Paul asked him to, and he chose to accept it. Timothy is showing humility here. He was willing to follow. He was willing to endure hardship even. Out of this spirit of teachability, you could imagine that Timothy was the kind of guy who would bring his questions and concerns to his mentor. Um, Timothy intently watched the way that his mentor lived. He learned to trust his mentor's counsel. He showed deep humility and teachability. A third observation about Timothy is simply that he was available. His schedule was open, right? It wasn't, I, don't, I don't know if he was you know, on a list of people that would go with, you know, that was ready to go on a mission trip or something like that. No, he was, just, he was there and they found him and he was available. If he wasn't available, he sort of canceled his plans and got available because this was important, right? It says in, in verse 4, they went on their way through the cities. We don't really get a lot of feedback from exactly what, what Timothy said, but he, he voted with his feet. He went. He did it. Some will think that this idea of finding a Paul, carving out space and, and time to make it happen in your life um, is a good idea, but it will cost you something. It will be, it will be hard to, to move towards this. As I said earlier, I think each of us will hit like a false ceiling or something of our potential in life as Christ followers if we don't have someone older, someone wiser, pouring into us with intention and wisdom and counsel and offering accountability. And There's seasons in life where, this is, where you don't have this, or some of y'all have never had this before. I hope this sparks you and encourages you to maybe consider this and begin praying that way. I remember talking at the bagel shop with my dad once about integrity, and he defined integrity. We did a little Bible study on it. Our kind of takeaway definition was this, doing whatever is right, no matter what the consequences are, even if no one is looking. That's like seared into my brain. Doing whatever is right, no matter what the consequences are, even if no one's looking. Ah, that is hard, y'all. He asked me if there was any areas of my life that were lacking integrity, As soon as the question was out of his mouth, I was immediately convicted and knew exactly what I needed to say. Um, I think I was in eighth grade at the time, and I would get to school a little early, and I'd copy people's homework. It was easy to do. I did it in the hallway. 
uh, before the te- no teachers were out there before class, and uh, I was always on time and got my work done. Um, when my dad brought this up, I was I was convicted. Um, there was this was an area of dissonance for me that at somehow some way, and we all do this, and I still this, do this today. We sort of just get comfortable with these little things in our lives, and we we justify them, we make excuses for them, until someone points it out to us. And love that person. <laughs> love that person who points it out to you. You'll be mad at them for a moment and then be, say thank you. You know, what, the proverb that says, the, the, better the wound of a friend than the kiss of an enemy. Well, um, I went ahead and took a risk, shared that with my dad. Wasn't sure if I was, the meeting was going to be over and I was going to be you know, sent home and grounded or whatever. Um, instead, he patiently questioned me about it. Uh, and I remember one question that really stood out to me the most was, what impact do you think that might have on your friends who don't know the Lord? Ooh, that would hurt. From that day forward, I'm not sure I ever cheated again on a school test. I probably cheated on other stuff. <laughs> um, Lord help me. And I'm not always that responsive to correction, but man, in that moment, I was, I was, he pinned me to the wall. God was using the Holy Spirit. He was using my Paul to have a deep impact on me. I was being transformed through a critical relationship. While we're praying and perhaps waiting for a Paul to come into our lives, we can seek to become a Timothy who's faithful, who's teachable, who's available. I want to give you guys some very practical next steps to take after each of these messages, because I'd love for these relationships to become a part of the culture, more and more a part of the culture of our church. I don't want this to be a concept that seems overly mysterious um, or difficult or complex. What we are really talking about, the basic idea is two people meeting together. One person might be one half step ahead in the Lord. They're pouring into the other person. There's a Bible open on the table, and they're wrestling with life. They're digging in together. That's That's kind of what I want y'all to hear, the simplicity of this, really. If you're in a city group or just discussing the sermon after church today, I'd love for y'all to talk about some of these next steps as as I'm sharing them with you here in a minute. Feel free to take a picture of these. Here we go. Next steps. Pray for a Paul. Start praying. Just pray. Watch what God does. If if you're kind of like, this is impossible. I don't know anyone. This would be awkward. I'm not sure what this would look like. Everyone can start with prayer. Let me encourage you to pray for a Paul. Ask them to get together to, with, with you sometimes so you can ask them questions. Um, don't go up to them and say, you know, will you be my mentor for the rest of my life? I mean, that's going to be kind of overwhelming. <laughs> um, hey, would love to grab lunch with you. Ask you some questions I have about life and kind of what I'm dealing with. Write down some of those questions. Maybe you have them before. Maybe you, once, you get the, once you get the time set up, then you go write down your questions. Sit with, them, sit with that for a question. What are my questions? Where do I need help? Where am I struggling? Don't be, the, don't be the, the, uh, the 90% who are feeling lonely and struggling and aren't reaching out for help. Questions like, I'm struggling to read my Bible before work in the mornings. What is your devotional life like? I'm having a hard time being patient with my kids. How have you learned patience from the Lord? I'm eager to represent Christ at work, but don't know where to start. What does that look like for you? Write down your questions. Ask the questions when you get there. And then ask if you can do it again. And after the third or fourth or fifth time, they might say, 
You really just want to make this a regular thing? That'd be pretty cool. Um, or this also, this also could be, you know, something something you do with several people, and over time, you sort of begin to spend regular time with with one or two people. Sometimes the questions that you ask, and as you're discussing them, it can lead to um, digging in, opening up to a certain topic that y'all are going to study together, or some ideas that y'all are going to process together. Maybe consistent prayer together over a certain area of your life. These are things that this is kind of where it could go over time. But start with questions and put, your, uh, put yourself out there and take a little risk and see what God does. By the way, notice all the initiative and persistence this is going to take. I encourage you to do it. This is the start of a three-part series, Three Critical Relationships. We started talking this morning about the epidemic of loneliness in our country. It's not working real well for us to live lives isolated from the relationships that matter. There will be seasons in life, like I said, where that is, that's, that's just where you're at. You'll, you'll be walking alone for a period. Maybe there's been a long season of your life where you've been walking somewhat alone. God can meet you in that. God can meet you right there. As Wes said earlier, God is a good father. But that's not meant to be ongoing, I believe, or normative even, as I see in Scripture. You and I were made to flourish. I believe one way that we'll learn to do that is by finding a Paul, having a Paul, spiritual mentor, guide, coach in our lives. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray for my friends this morning. Would you remind them of your goodness to them as a heavenly father, engaged with them, in love with them, guiding them. And thank you, God, for your body that you have raised up, men and women all around us, who have learned something from you and have something to offer. God, lead us to take the initiative with those folks, to ask them for help, to ask them for counsel and guidance, and use them in our lives, Lord, to grow us and develop us into the men and women that you are calling us to be. I pray for your grace in that and your help. In Jesus' name, amen.